Hello and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious, in all corners of Africa. It's educational, informative, and offers diverse perspectives. I'm Peter, and I'll be your host today. Of course, make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Remember to connect with us on Discord and tell us what is on your mind. Hello, Violet, Ghana, Eva, Gloria. This week was full of intriguing stories. So before I hear what's on your mind, a question from the week's news, Gloria. Let's imagine Carabo. Which country should she reside in if she is interested in marrying more than one husband? <laughs> uh, I know. I think I know that is South Africa. That is correct. Now, of course, this is only a proposal at this time. Just to clarify, it's only a proposal. But the South African government has shared a proposal to legalize polandry. Now, the logic goes, if a man is able to marry more than one woman, how about vice versa? And as you can imagine, some people are pushing back and talking about all the complications that may be there. For example, who is going to pay Lobola? Is that the woman or is the woman's family simply <laughs> going to hit a jackpot with multiple offers of Lobola, for instance? Others have said that it's very un-African and certainly we're not going to sell the debate today, but it is taking shape in South Africa. So congratulations, wow. Gloria. You got your quiz question today. Now, Eva, I know for you, marrying multiple husbands is off the table, <laughs> but I'm curious, what's on your mind? Of course, that is off the limit, you know. But funny enough, I'm going to talk about the king of Iswatini, who also has 15 wives. So it's the opposite of nice. what has been discussed in South Africa, right? One man with 15 wives, that is a lot. He really has the strength to handle all of them. We know that this week, the kingdom has been really rocked with a lot of protest. And citizens are not happy with situations and also the system of governance in the country. So there have been protests going on in various parts of the country. People are demanding for constitutional reforms, including the right to vote, the right to choose their own prime minister, the right to have political parties to run in an election. Because currently in Iswatini, political parties have been banned from running in national elections. So the king has the absolute power to elect the prime minister, whoever he wants. He has the power to select his own cabinet. And he also has the power to dissolve parliament whenever he wants to. So like the economic resources of the country is in the hands of the king to make all the decisions for the people and also for the kingdom. And people are not really happy because you have a country of 1.14 million people and majority of them live under the poverty line. And we know that a king has 15 wives and because of that, they live lavishly, like luxurious cars, extensive big parties and things like that by the children posting some of this on social media. And people in the country are really, really suffering. So most of the people are like, no, this has to end. We need constitutional change. We need a um, new system of governance. We have to vote. We also have to have a say in what goes on in this country. So as a result, 
most of the people, especially the young people, they do not want to take this anymore. So they hit the street, protesting big time, protesting a lot. And of course, in the course of the protesting, they were looting, they were burning of businesses, properties, and they were actually targeting businesses that belong to the royal family, the king and his extended family members. So most of them have been banned. The government also responded aggressively by targeting them. There were live ammunition that were shot at some of the protesters. So some of them have actually lost their lives. There have been a number of injuries. But the people are saying that we are not going to back down until something has been done. In the midst of this, the government has imposed a curfew where all businesses has to close by 3 p.m. And all residents of the country have to leave the street by 6 p.m. and come back at 5 a.m. Some of the protesters defiled the curfew and they were really, really beaten badly. Some of them actually died in the hands of the police and also the military. So this has been going on and because of this, the supply chain has been cut because of the unrest. So what you are seeing that there is supply of gas, there is supply of food in the country currently, um, as we speak, because a supply chain has been distracted. The main underlying cause, apart from what I spoke about, the economic condition of the country, where majority of the youth who are unemployed, about 46.2% are unemployed, according to the World Bank, as of 2019. These are the economic conditions. Unemployment is also 23.4%. The country has a GDP per capita rate of about 3,000 US dollars. Majority of the people live in poverty. And the main thing that actually led to this massive protest actually happened in May, where a university of Iswatini law student died. And the authorities said that she died by car accident, but the student said that no, the student didn't die by car accident. She was really mishandled by the police. So it resulted in a massive protest where they had crashes with the police. And in the course of that, they decided, that was just last Saturday, they decided to handle petition to parliament requesting that they meet certain demands. And when they also got there, they were also mishandled by the police. They had crashes between them. And you had some of the dissident lawmakers and some people in the quote-unquote opposition party who were not happy joined the protesters and said, we have to demand for constitutional change, reform in this country. We need a new system of governance. So that is actually what led to all these protests as we are speaking now, because this is yeah. like, as you are talking, the biggest protest that has ever hit the kingdom of Iswatini. It's crazy to just think about everything that Eva just talked about now. So I am curious about the role of the parliament. So if the king has this absolute power, is decided who is the minister, who is the parliament, what authority does the parliament have and what is the parliament doing during this process? Because I'm like, okay, one single person cannot be ruling an entire country and making all the decisions. So if the parliament doesn't have power, so why are they there? What's their job? Well, they are there. They're putting out statements defending, obviously, the king in this situation. There's a bit of a controversy in the country now whether the king is inside the country or outside the country. There have been some reports that he has left the country, and that could be to prevent him from being captured or something of this nature. The parliament is saying, mm -hmm. well, he's in the country and everything's operating as usual. And the thing with the parliament is it's an opportunity oftentimes for a leader, in this case, to establish his patronage networks, to keep those mm -hmm. people that he needs mm -hmm. to keep happy around him happy. 
it's not used in the traditional governance sense, right? It's not used for legislating. It's not used for debate and discussion. It's used for co-optation of those elites. And so if you look at elections in Eswatini, not only are all the ministers selected by the king, but all candidates running are vetted by the king. So you must be allowable to the king to run for office. So essentially what you have in elections is two people who both you know, at least are acceptable to the king running. So, you, yeah, you got a little bit of competition or at least the perception of competition or the feeling of competition without real competition. And this has been going on for many years. In fact, just building on what Eva said, the country's been in a quote unquote state of emergency since the 1970s. So I, I don't know what kind of emergency lasts for, you know, 30 odd or more years, but that's the state of Iswatini. So when we hear about these crackdowns, the limitations of the internet and all of these things, I guess you would say it's an emergency on an emergency that's lasted many years past probably a majority of the population of the country has, has experienced a state of emergency throughout their lives. So this is the context there. And that's what we see. It's a very unique case when it comes to the surrounding neighbors in Southern Africa as well, this absolute monarch construction. Many of us will call to a traditionalizing or Africanizing democracy. And I think this was a kind of uh, effort they made way back in 1973 or 1977 to be precise. Because when you look back in 1973, that was when they actually suspended the constitution and banned political party. And up until now in Iswatini, there are no political parties. So Iswatini is a country whereby you have people voted into parliament without political party. So when you talk about our politicians or oppositions, we don't use opposition in the technical sense in Iswatini because we only have what we call dissident politicians that are not necessarily following the path of the king and his allies in the parliament. And what happened in 1977 was that the king actually abolished, the then king abolished the parliament and replaced it by traditional tribal communities. Those were serving the roles of the parliament. And one would have expected that if properly managed, that should have ushered in an era of Africanized democracy in the kingdom. But that wasn't going to be the case because it eventually became an appendage of the monarchical power of the king, allowing the king to control the arms of government as he so deemed fit. And as a result, nobody is holding the king accountable. And the question to me is this, where do we go from here? Listening to what Eva was saying and knowing that I think in 2019, there was a strike by public servants and their grievance was that the king was draining public coffers because he wanted to maintain his lifestyle. And of course, the king has always been accused of living a very, a very lavish lifestyle compared to his citizens. Right now, we have rural areas that have particularly been known for supporting the king you know, coming up to say, no, we, we can't do this anymore. And then having the protests also driven by the youths. Clearly, this is driven by embedded inequality. But I'm just thinking mm -hmm. to myself, if we have the rural areas that have been traditionally renowned for supporting the king coming up to speak out against his practices, could this be a harbinger of change? Like Peter mentioned previously that the country has been in a state of emergency. But then if we have pockets of the country that have been traditionally known for supporting the king coming up to say we are tired, could this be a turning point for the country? And then when we look at it from the point of view of the youths driving the protests, could this be 
some sort of generational divide whereby, okay, we have generation Z that is saying, no, we can't continue with this kind of monarchical rule. We want something different because they are exposed to, you know, something different compared to the older generation. Could this be just another emergency or could this be the real deal? That's a good question, Violet, because like Peter said, we were talking earlier about the parliament. What's their job? Mm -hmm. What are they doing? But Mm -hmm. again, these are people who are there to do basically image management for the king. They are just there to support the king, to give an illusion of some sort of uh, decentralized power, that we have other sectors of the government making decisions for the country. But this is a system that's been in place for decades. For something like that to shift and change, definitely that change has to also happen from within the system. So that's why people who are currently in positions of power, like people in the parliament and the minister, I believe they have much more influence to shift this country towards something different. Who are the actors that will come in and take over the country? And what direction are these actors going to take the country? Because when we talk about power struggle, call for change within the system, it's one thing for people to call for change. It's another thing for those that are really prepared to take over the process. It's the same situation that was during the era of Mubarak. But the only thing that has changed in Egypt is the name of the leadership. And they seem to be operating in democracy that is more or less authoritarian in all forms. So you can see that it's a big issue. And that is why, to me, we need to have a good understanding of who these major actors are and how well prepared are they when it comes to the issue of going through a democratic process, electing a leader, because it's one thing to go through a democracy. It's another thing for you to actually get the vote. And that is why what is ahead is the big issue that is difficult to unbundle. It's not something that is linear, that is one plus one equals two. We had a similar experience in Nigeria, those that actually fought for democracy in Nigeria. Democracy is very expensive. I've always called it a plutocracy. Those activists never had sufficient money to campaign and they didn't get into power. So more or less, those guys who work with the military and who had that financial capability to capitalize the electioneering campaign process got into power. And the same whole shenanigan continued under a democracy. So I'm really worried what this actually means for the future of Eswafini. If it's really going to usher in an era that is a radical breakthrough from what we know currently. Because if we want a radical departure from the monarchical system, we might be plugging the country into a full-blown crisis. And I'm not a believer in, in monolithic democracy. I believe democratic favor that should work in a particular country should take into cognizance existing cultural and traditional institutional outlook in that particular environment. So there's some alarming numbers. So Afrobarometer did a survey in March and April of this mm-hmm. year, and the results have suggested that when they asked people, do you reject the following non-democratic alternatives? 83% reject being ruled by a king. A vast majority reject being ruled by a king. So I think coming back to Ghana's point, the time is now for the king to act. There's a point where you're able to act and change the lay of the land after your absolutist rule. And if you let that pass, monarchies get swept aside. So if you look at the monarchies in Europe, for example, those that have survived have stepped back from political life in many respects. They play that ceremonial role. 
Yes, they are the ones to formally dissolve the parliament. But again, that's at the behest of the parliament and the request of the parliament. So that opportunity carves out that space for those traditional ways of rulership. But that process may come and go. So right now is sort of a critical juncture. How is the monarchy able to adapt under these conditions? And I think one of the concerns here, and we have to always keep in mind in Iswatini, is that the elites and those around the king see democracy or any sort of form of moving towards democracy as a threat to their financial interests. And I think that comes with the fact that the country is highly unequal. If the country was more mm -hmm. equal, you could transition to democracy. It's not going to have large tax implications, redistribution implications. But in a country where you have tons of business interests, you have a lot of the wealth concentrated in your hands and the people around you, you have a lot to lose. And that is kind of concerning when we think about the king saying, well, I can be accepting this more ceremonial role and playing this role as the father or mother of the given nation. But the time is now, right? Because I think if this conflict escalates, there may be no ability to revive some sort of monarchical rule. It will be tainted with an era of 40 plus years of emergency, no political competition, and a crackdown on behalf of the king. And so this is the decision kings have to make. A lot of monarchical rulers made it in the Middle East when it came to the Arab Spring in Jordan, for example, and in other countries that delegated more power in Morocco, they delegated a bit more power to certain institutions when they were coming up against some pressure. The king doesn't seem interested in doing that at this time. And I think that is further emboldening the protesters. And again, we can understand why. So I agree with you, Ghana. There is a place for monarchical authority, perhaps, and it's this type of transition. We've seen it in Europe. We've seen it elsewhere. But the question is, how will the monarchy behave? Will they embrace that transition? That is really the challenge here because he's not really come out to really speak to the people. It's mostly the prime minister that is saying that he's around and that he is asking people to calm down and is requesting for peace in the country. So this is the time that he has to come out and talk, convey parliament, bring in the people that are making the demands and talk to them. I mean, the fact that the youth wanted to make a petition to parliament and they were blocked shows that they were not ready to even listen to them, let alone yeah. implement any constitutional change or reforms. So this is really worrying. And as Peter is saying, this is the time for him to come and respond to the people. Or this is the time for him to see it as an opportunity to come out with some uh, reforms. It's not going to be a big reform. It has to be gradual, you know, it has to be gradual. But if he's missed this opportunity, I mean, I don't know, the next protest or the next thing that will happen will be bigger than this. I'll say it's, it's a little bit hard these days getting information in and out. I know we have scholars at the Institute from Iswatini, and they have internet during select times during this period right now. But we hope for the best in Iswatini, and we hope for a diminution of violence, but also we hope for an actual acknowledgement of the concerns of those protesters and young people in the country. So that needs to also importantly be acknowledged in this situation. So let's move on a bit. Violet. Turning to you, I'm curious what is on your mind, perhaps not in the political realm, but perhaps we're going somewhere else. Yes, Peter, that is absolutely true. Uh, but what's on my mind right now is how to get uh, a South African visa and hopefully citizenship so I can marry multiple men. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> not yet, though. What is on not my yet. 
It's coming up, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed. But what's on my mind today is Gloria's namesake. So a Ugandan named Gloria Tomashabe, and she is a MasterCard Foundation Scholar in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. She is doing some phenomenal work during the pandemic. And, you know, her story has really highlighted how adversity sometimes pushes us, you know, into innovation. So right now what she's doing is teaching young girls in Uganda how to code. Basically coding is computer language and how we communicate with computers. Sometimes we do call it computer programming. But her inspiration was packed when she went to Uganda for her internship, which she did in Kampala, that is uh, Uganda's capital. But when she was there, she did realize that the coding field was dominated by men. And she also realized that during the evenings, they went to teach themselves how to code in internet cafes. And then they would come together to discuss their progress and support each other. However, girls weren't able to do this because, as many of us know, it is looked down upon for young girls to be leaving the confines of home in the evenings and stay out late at night. And so definitely because of the social culture setup and also safety concerns, it is mostly boys who do that. And so during the pandemic, she decided that, okay, because schools are set up in in such a way that right now, at least for Uganda, we do have very little infrastructure that allows for online teaching and learning. So when the pandemic became really, really bad, all schools did hold in-person classes. And because there was no infrastructure in place to enable this, she decided to take advantage of this time to mm. teach young girls how to code. And so her target audience has been high school graduates who haven't yet joined college. And so she did set out to recruit girls while she was sheltering in place in California, where she is at the moment. And she did use social media and her contacts back home, including her former employees, colleagues, and friends. And originally she did recruit 40 girls. However, she only ended up with 13 in the end because the girls did not have access to laptops. And so only 13 did have access to laptops. One of the things I was Mm -hmm. reading in this story, I also came across it, was that she was recruiting mentors from Silicon Valley. So it wasn't just her involved. Was that right? Yeah, absolutely. So she does belong to a women in tech group called Sister Circle that's composed of about 7,000 Black women who are in tech. So it's mostly African-American women, but also she does have other graduate students who are with her in the same department. And so it's from this pool that she recruits mentors for these girls and the classes definitely go on via Zoom. So they're able to join in. And the time that these classes happen is about 10 p.m. Ugandan time. And so it's because usually at that time, all the girls are done with their house chores and they're able to sit down and learn. But I mean, it does highlight the gender digital divide because I mean, if for example, she had 40 girls in the beginning, but just had 13 right now because the rest did not have access to computers. This does show how it's possible that girls are falling behind when it comes to the tech space because of the disproportionate access to these facilities. But I'm glad that she is doing this work and. It is 
going off the ground because at some point she does say that she did lack resources, financial resources. So she was using her own resources to buy internet for the girls, but she was able to set up a GoFundMe and now she has some funds and the girls are able to access Wi-Fi so that they're able to code. So some of the programs that they're learning include Python and they're creating games. And she has a dream to one day build a physical innovation hub in the country where girls can come into code in a safe space and she can provide snacks and feminine hygiene products like menstrual packs and hopefully expand this initiative to the rest of other sub-Saharan African countries. There's one thing though I would like to highlight about women in tech in general. These efforts are very important. First of all, even training women, like you said, most times even access to training is really difficult for women and girls. Training is one step, but what you find generally when you go down the line, so many just drop out. There are so many things that hold girls back. So training is one thing, but to shift mindset when it comes to women into the tech fields, into the engineering fields, Women need role models. That's the main issue. If in the family, in the society, you're not encouraged to pursue that route, it's so hard to sustain that training and sustain a career in tech. And so initiatives like that are good and they should be coupled with just education in the society and in the families, telling people why this is important, how this is going to impact the community. And it's very important to bring that kind of awareness. Otherwise, a girl would train and then she leaves that training at home. Nobody encourages her and you get discouraged at some point and drop out. And I think training needs to happen at various levels. I completely agree with you, Gloria, because when you listen to Gloria (laughs) speak, she does say that her parents played a very big role in encouraging her to take this up because she was told as a young girl that engineers were smart and so she should take up this role. And that's how she ended up there. And clearly, Gloria, you can see that parental contribution played a very big role in that. And when you talk about women dropping out of the tech space, that is also very true because there was a study that was done by Resetting Tech Culture and it gathered information from about 2,000 tech workers and 500 uh, senior human resources leaders in companies, employing people in the technology space and about 2,700 college graduates. And they did find that women were quitting their tech jobs by age 35. And that is really, really mm. scary. And Gloria, when you think about it in terms of our sociocultural setup, I mean, a lot of pressures like the pressure to get married, start a family, be a mom and all those things eventually affect women's ability to deliver in these jobs. And so it becomes possible that by that time you have so many competing factors for your attention that eventually you're forced to sacrifice your career at the altar of all these other things. And, you know, many times we think about the tech space as gender neutral, but it actually is not neutral. So if you think about the fact that women are likely to quit their tech jobs at about age 35. And the fact that there's a gender digital divide, it makes things even much more interesting. Because for example, right now, according to the World Bank, South Asia leads the gender digital divide by 51%. And then when it comes down to us in sub-Saharan Africa, we follow suit with about 37%. So that's still a very, very wide gap. And because of this, you find that 
women eventually are prevented from accessing services like education and financial inclusion. And these are things that could significantly change their lives and offer them financial independence. 40 people were enrolled in this program, 14 people dropped. So the question I like to know as a social scientist, what is the socioeconomic demographics of those that continue with the program? What is the socioeconomic demographics of those that drop out of the program? Because the problem with technology is that technology is not a solution to the social demographic crisis of poverty are based on this. If you have that, we have to solve that problem. If we don't solve that problem, more this, we still be dropping out of the program. So it might goes back to the socioeconomic condition of those that drop out. And that requires that we address that concern or we come up with interventions that can be used to support folks from struggling homes. But one of the things I've realized with technology is that it's more likely to widen the rich and poor divide in the society. Because in most cases, technology don't address the institutional, structural, and other drivers of social economic inequalities. And those socioeconomic inequalities to a large extent determine who's gotten access or is able to take advantage of a particular technology or the other. There's also an organization in Ghana called Developers in Vogue that does a similar thing that targets women only in the context of doing coding work. And they're connected to Google and Microsoft and these folks to help move forward coding. One thing that's always on my mind as we leave this topic is, you know, we're talking about computer coding and coding, but I always wonder coding for what purpose and what are we adding to the economy? We obviously see great need for using information, thinking about all the data that is being generated from a lot of different sources and making use of it in our development plans. So I think it's really clear and exciting how we can leverage that. But there are other aspects of the economy outside of the tech field that also have to be taken care of as well, because we need people to make the things that we need and build the infrastructure that is there as well. So technology is a part of it. And I think what's really wonderful about some of these initiatives and as they progress is how they latch on to a more equitable access of technology and then relating that to other aspects of the economy that data and information can be leveraged to do. And Ghana, since you ended our conversation there, you cannot escape the news quiz this episode. And no, the question is not about Nigeria. I'm sorry to let you know. (laughs) All right, so here we go. Museveni, the president of Uganda, loves complaining. Remember how he used to complain about old leaders refusing to yield to a new generation. And yes, that was back in the 1980s, mind you. Well, now, this week, Museveni was complaining about something else. What was it? Hmm, That's a big one. I think it might have to do with uh, lack of compliance to COVID regulation. But I'm not too sure. Very, very close. You're in the (laughs) COVID-19 realm. It's in that area. Gloria, do you want to try? My guess would be something having to do with vaccines. That is right. That is correct. So together, you've answered the question. Yes, so Museveni was complaining about how African countries have failed miserably in designing and manufacturing their own vaccines. In this case, Museveni may actually be on to something. He recently made these remarks because Western governments have pledged a large set of vaccines that will be sent to both medium and low-income countries. So 
He was commenting on some of those recent developments and reflecting on it. That is the last quiz question we have for today and your only one for this episode, Ghana. But I am interested as to what is on your mind. I've been an activist and uh, I'm still an activist scholar. And activism has been something that I pay a lot of attention to on the continent and how governments in different countries across the world, particularly in Africa, are responding to agitation for good governance. That is what is on my mind today. And particularly, I've been monitoring the situation in Ghana. It's an unfolding situation. There is a movement that started in May 2021. They call it Fix the Country Movement and the makers of many social media platforms, particularly Twitter, to advocate for accountability in government. They are advocating for economic improvement because the country has been going through mounting economic hardship, partly attributed to lack of accountability by folks in government. And the crisis has also been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. For the record, Ghana GDP seems to be doing well, but that GDP is not actually reflected in the economic life of people at the grassroots. And that is telling us a lot of issues. So these guys, they are concerned and uh, they have reasons to be concerned. And all they are calling to is accountability. Stop mismanagement of public funds. Do what is expected of you as our elected officials. So they've been doing all sorts of activities. And these activities are making the government become increasingly unpopular. And there was this young man who got killed on June 29th. His name is Mr. Muhammad Ibrahim, a.k.a. Kaka. And uh, he's been very focal, he's a social critic, and uh, he's been so focal against the government. He was struck on his head by an unknown person, and that led to his death. And uh, a fallout of this was a riot that was led by folks in Southern Asante region, folks that are associated with physical country movement, and those that have a lot of respect for this young man. In response to these protests, the government climbed down on the protester, leading to the death of maybe one or two protesters and the injury of several many protesters. So this crisis <coughs> is evolving in Ghana and it's generating a lot of attention, you know, from the government and from citizens in the country who are worried about the manner the government is managing and responding to this crisis. So it's something that is agitated in my mind, particularly how the government is responding to this crisis mm. and uh, the implication of the economic model that majority of the African countries are pursuing for the economic awareness of the greater majority of the people. We have similar issues going on in different African countries. And I'm particularly curious what Eva thinks. I know you've been quite vocal and been thinking about this as well. It's been on your mind, apparently. So Ivo, I'm curious your thoughts. It's really disturbing the way the government is handling this situation. Fix the country. The demands of the citizens are things are not really working well. Fix it. You promised to fix it. So they are asking you fix it. When the government was coming into power, he said that we shouldn't be spectators. We should be citizens. We should speak out when something is not going right. You get it? So they are speaking out. They are telling you things are not working well. They are telling you that prices of things are going up. 
They're telling you taxes are going up. You said that when you come, you cut tax. Right now, every day, you are taxing them and taxes are going up from fuel, taxes going up from electricity to water and everything. So the demand is simple. Fix it. Because that was the promise, you know. Because we brought this guy in because we believe that the former government was really corrupt. And they campaigned on the basis of how the previous government was so incompetent that the economy was not working well. And there is this famous quote by the president. He said that we are in a country that is blessed with so many resources, but we are hungry. The citizens are not benefiting from the resources. And he came and we've seen that nothing has changed. And we are saying that, just fix it. Could you believe that every year in Ghana, it rains and it floods and people die because of flood? And we see it and people are saying, fix it. What do you have to do? Invest in the better infrastructure, drainage system and things like that. We are not seeing that. So I don't think that these demands are too much. I think that the protesters, the fix of country movement people, that want to come to you and bring petition, protest about some of the things, have the right to protest. But the government has blocked the protest over and over with the police. They took it to court. The court lifted the injunction. The police warned them that if they protest, they'll see what they will do to them. So there is this thing wow. going on in Kashra called the culture of silence. People are quiet because they're afraid that when they speak, they'll be attacked. A journalist was attacked or killed for being involved in investigating journalists and exposing something. We are entered into this culture of silence where people are afraid that when they become vocal, they will be attacked or people will go after them or their family members and things like that. Our president is a human rights lawyer. So people are saying that we believe that you should be the one that should be really open to listening to what these people have to say instead of using all these tactics of preventing them from protests. And right now, look at what has happened in the Ashanti region, which is really terrible. They were protesting, demanding for proper investigation into who killed these guys and why, and bring them to justice. Then the military went, then shot into the people and killing people just like that. So fix the system, fix the country. There needs to be proper dialogue, but we are not seeing it here. And people in this government are rather telling Ghanaians we should fix our attitude. And I just feel like that is not a good response. And <laughs> fix your attitude, Ghanaian. <laughs> but on a serious note, look, the system is not benefiting a lot of people. The elites are comfortable. The people in this administration, their families are comfortable. They are fine. Some of the MPs come on radio station to brag about how they send their children to elite Ivory schools in the US and things like that. Wow. But that is not the life of the average Ghanaian. When you look at the GDP of Ghana, they've been doing well over the years. When it comes to GDP, when you look at the figures, relatively well compared to other African countries. However, the GDP doesn't tell the story. When it mm. comes to the real impact of economic growth on the life of an ordinary people, it doesn't really tell us whether people are struggling or whether they've moved beyond that poverty line. The economy is not really doing well for the people, but the economy is doing well for the numbers, for the GDP numbers. So the question that I'm really interested in asking, and I think we need to address is, what do we need to do differently in Ghana regarding the economic model that is being promoted and that is being followed to bring about 
economic advances in the country. Mm-hmm. Is that actually working for the good of everyone? That is one thing we need to focus on. The other thing we need to focus on is this, because I'm beginning to re-examine the issue of protest in Africa. And one of the reasons why I'm beginning to re-examine the issue of protest in Africa is that I think going to the street or going to social media may not be a good starting point for us. I may be wrong, but this is an activist of years of experience coming to say, hey, if our goal is to force accountability, there are many entry points to do this. And one of the things I think should be explored is to force community level conversation and engagement with the lesser stakeholders. So in that way, we all create this environment that we are all here to help the country, not necessarily opposing a particular government. Of course, opposing a particular government is not a crime, but I'm just looking at that proposal, but we all sit down together and engage our elected representatives, managing different elected positions, have this very deep level conversation on what we can do or what they should be doing to make the economy work for every single person in the local area. There is a big assumption that that space is open. There are those entry points. That ability to sit down and who's sitting down, those are the key questions here. And that's why I think this really comes down to something that we were reflecting on earlier in Eswatini was that power and this competition of power is real. These spaces are closed. Monopolies are present, right? And they're not willing to open up and have those conversations on any other terms but their own. They simply want a diminution of what they see as a nuisance or a problem for them. And I think it really matters who's engaging in these protests and in this conversation. In Iswatini, it's a lot of people in rural areas, in urban areas, young people, for example, a broad swath of the population seems to be attuned to this. In Ghana as well, it seems like a pretty diverse group of individuals. We're not talking about your typical activists that are engaging in this, but there's a a large national conversation, perhaps even movement taking place. But Mm -hmm. I don't think those spaces for sitting down in a community and having a conversation are open. And I think that's the frustration that is there that comes out in the protests. And the only way in which you engage and start those conversations is you raise the cost of doing nothing. And that's what they're trying to do. There are there are unintentional consequences of that. Right. Not to say that the violence and destruction of property and things like that are a consequence of it, but it does raise the cost of those people who are in the comfortable positions and perhaps open the door. Peter, I'll push back on that. There is what I call the Bagua Manifest in Africa and in different parts of the world. Because most of the recent posters in different parts of the world elicited through the social media platforms. And that doesn't mean that those that are doing that cannot call for grassroots level meeting and engagement. Has it been explored? We don't have the evidence that says no. That people cannot gather in their neighborhood and have this deep conversation with the elected officials. I believe it is possible if it is explored. But what seems to be playing out to me is that we see it happening in Nigeria during answers. People tend to mobilize easily through social media platforms. But one thing that we may be losing with that is that it precludes us from exploring the opportunity of sitting down at the grassroots level, holding that conversation. I wouldn't want to think that Ghana has got into a state that people cannot meet at community level. 
that people cannot come together, call meetings with their elected officials. If they choose to come, they choose not to come. The conversation goes on. I think it's one of the things we need to bring to the table. But it's yeah, about yeah, the meaningfulness of those conversations. They could even happen. I'm yeah, not I, saying that they wouldn't happen. But of course, always it's, it's like, yes, thank you for letting me know your frustrations. I'll work on it. Yeah. And that's what has I been said me. for years after years. And so you have to force the hands of those who are benefiting. There has to be some level of force here. I'm curious your thoughts, Violet. I know the talking drums are going to be heard at any point from now, but I'm curious your thoughts, Violet. I agree with Peter because, I mean, power is never given. It has to be taken mm -hmm. because the people who are in there are comfortable and there's just no way that they're just going to open their front door and be like, come in, have a seat, make yourself comfortable, <laughs> take whatever you want. No. But then again, Ghana, when you look at the process of policy making, it's not as linear as we would like to think. So even if you have a representative that goes down to the community level and sits down with the people that they represent and they discuss these issues and he goes back to parliament, like Peter said, that there are monopolies of power that exist within the system and they are not willing to have a debate unless it's on their terms. And so even if this elected member comes back to parliament to discuss these issues, remember, we have an opposition and then we have a pro-government side and then we have independent members. That is the price of democracy. It's not like he's going to come and say, my people need this and it's going to be accepted. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be concessions made. There's going to be deals made until mm -hmm. finally, if ever, we can get enough votes to pass this thing through. And the same goes for the president. That is still the price of a democracy. I still think as much as Ghanaians are entitled to asking for what they want you cannot have everything at the same time again that's the price of democracy because the president is not an absolute monarch just like we were talking about eswatini a few minutes ago he just can't say okay this is it we need to fix this we need to fix that again he has to allow the processes of democracy to work these things are going to go through parliament they're going to be debated again those monopolies of power are going to be alive and well and clamorful their different positions. So it's not as easy as we would like to think it is. We need to think about this in incremental terms and that's really how policy making works. It's incremental. It's not really like an avalanche as we'd like to think it is. Oh, that was perfect. Violet, I can hear the talking drums. And before we go, some weeks there are things in the news that are just too amusing to pass by. So consider Ghana's Minister of Fisheries and Aquaculture, Mavis Hawa Kumsan, who arrived in Kedah, which is a coastal town, to take a giant wooden key to lock the sea. It's very interesting. And the reason why she was doing this is the government is concerned about overfishing. So if you are interested in the issue of overfishing, unlocking the sea, or any of the stories on this episode of This Week, continue the conversation on Leaders of Africa's Discord community. And make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for all new and great content. And that's all for today. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks and take care.